chapter 13, we see that his disciples ask him a question dealing with the signs of the time, the end of the age. And it's the longest answer that Jesus gave concerning any question that was asked him. And it's given here. When asked about prophecy, there on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives directly east of Jerusalem, overlooking that Temple Mount area where the temple was. So Jesus, he would spend a great deal of time and length concerning the end times and, and what he has to say about his return, his second return. So remember that Jesus, as we've been traveling through Mark's gospel, has just gotten through cleansing the temple, overturning the money changers' tables, driving out those who have bought and sold, who are making merchandise of the things of God. Jesus was indicting those religious leaders who were ripping the people off, taking advantage of the people. And so he would say there at the temple to them, that you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And Jesus, Mark records, stopped the, the ministry that was taking place at the temple. He would not allow the priests to carry vessels through the temple. Chapter 11, verse 16, declares to us. And so the religious leaders, as we have seen, were furious with Jesus, began to ask him about his authority. By what authority do you do these things? By whose authority do you do these things? Because the heart and the life of the nation was centered around the temple there in Jerusalem. So what Jesus did was a very, very remarkable and amazing thing. And in doing that, perhaps his disciples thought that maybe you're being a little bit too hard, Lord. Maybe a little bit too harsh. And as Jesus, who has been teaching there at the temple, we saw last week. And when we talk about the temple, it's the temple proper. The temple itself, the building itself, with the holy place and the most holy place, Jesus never went into that temple because only the priests were allowed to go into the temple. But the temple proper there the temple mount is where he was teaching where the people would go to offer sacrifice there for the feast and particularly the feast of passover which is taking place during this last week of jesus life and so he's there teaching the people and and we discuss as we ended last week with the poor widow who gave two mites there in the temple treasury. And so Jesus then, as he's leaving the temple mount area, he's going to be heading out the eastern gate, crossing the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And as he's doing that, verse 1 tells us of Mark chapter 13, then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Lord, look at this magnificent temple. Look at all that has taken place. It can't be that bad, is it? Look how glorious and how wonderful and how beautiful it is here. And indeed it was. And as we have discussed, the temple and the temple proper, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was because of Herod the Great. He was called great, not because he was a great man, but because he built great things. He was a great builder. And he decided what he was going to do when he ruled was he was going to remodel the temple that was originally built by Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel would come back from the 70-year captivity of Babylon. It was the first temple that Solomon built that you read about there in 1 Kings that that temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies in 586 B.C. So after the 70 years of captivity, we know that Zerubbabel would come back and he would rebuild the temple. It was the second temple. It was a very modest building. And so in about 20 B.C., about 20 years before Jesus comes on the scene, 
it was Herod the Great that decided that he wanted to remodel the temple, make the Temple Mount expand it and, and make all these outbuildings and make it a magnificent structure. The religious leaders asked him, don't destroy Zerubbabel's temple. So instead of destroying it and starting all over again, he remodified it. And it's interesting that the project was still going on some 50 years later when Jesus here is speaking these things and the remodeling project would continue for almost another 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Herod was one that he liked using large stones. And it's interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that some of those stones were nearly 50 feet long and, and 12 feet high and 8 feet thick. And as they've done some excavations, archaeologists have discovered that what Josephus wrote about was certainly true. Matter of fact, when we were in Israel a couple weeks ago, we were able to go into one of those tunnels that they've been doing excavations, and some of those foundation stones of the retaining wall that surrounded the temple. Now, the temple was completely destroyed, but the retaining wall that went around the temple there, some of those foundational stones are almost as large as this back wall here. And it's absolutely amazing as you look at that. And, and there are engineers and there are builders who wonder, they marvel, they, they think, you know, how were they able to cut those stones so perfectly? How was it that some of these stones that weigh 450 tons, were they able to move those stones from the quarry to in place there at the Temple Mount? It's still a mystery how they were able to do that and carve those stones out so perfectly because you see, when you look at the Herodian stones, those stones that are 2,000 years old, they are perfectly carved. They didn't use any mortar between uh, the, the stones. And the cracks there between the stones, you can't even put a knife blade in between them. So perfectly carved. So it really is amazing. Then the temple itself was covered with sheets of gold. And oftentimes, as Josephus would write, from the Mount of Olives, you couldn't look at the temple directly because of the sun reflecting its light off of the temple. It was magnificent. It was incredible. It was one of the marvels of the ancient world. And so Jesus, his disciples leaving the temple, one of them says, hey, look at these large stones. Look at this impressive and beautiful temple that is here. And so Jesus answered, verse 2, and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Yes, this is a great building. Yes, this is magnificent, but the day is going to come that it will be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another. And we know that this was fulfilled indeed to the letter. It would be nearly 40 years after Jesus said this to his disciples that Titus and the 10th Roman legions would come in. They would destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. They would destroy the temple. And they would tear the temple apart stone by stone because the fire was so hard, hot that the gold began to melt down upon the stones there. And so the Roman soldiers, wanting to get the gold and the spoils, they tore the temple up. And they would tear it up stone by stone. And it's interesting, again, as we showed you in the pictures, some of the excavations that they've done recently over the last 20 years, that some of those stones were just tossed over the edge of the Temple Mount down into a road in a valley called the Terrapin Valley. And you can see those stones today. It's very fascinating. So the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, just as Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. 
In verse 30, now, as they sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So Jesus, walking up to the Mount of Olives, four of his disciples come and ask him two questions. When will this happen? That is, the destruction of the temple. And what will be the signs when all these things will be fulfilled? You see, when Jesus told them that the magnificent temple will be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another, I'm sure that they were astonished at what he said. They, they couldn't comprehend it. They were absolutely blown away. The only way that they thought, this is the way I believe they were thinking, the only way they thought for that to happen would be for the end of the world to happen. So that's why I believe they put the two questions together. When will be the temple destroyed and what will be the fulfillment at the end of the age? They were thinking that if the temple gets destroyed in the manner that you're speaking of, Lord, then it has to be the end of the world. So Jesus gives these four disciples, these two sets of brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew, a, a private briefing on end-time prophecy so let's look at it carefully as Jesus responds to them, verse 5. And Jesus answered them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. Now to get a full account of what Jesus said to his disciples, you must read Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, which are parallel accounts here to Mark chapter 13 of what Jesus said to his disciples. And each gospel writer selects certain things in which he wants to emphasize. For example, Matthew emphasizes what will happen to Israel. Remember that Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews to show that Jesus is the king of kings. Luke is the only one that deals with the fall of Jerusalem, the captivity of the Jews and the domination of Jerusalem by the Gentiles because Luke's audience is going to be a lot of Gentiles, Luke being Greek himself. Mark emphasizes the danger of faith which is going to arise in the age that follows the resurrection of our Lord. So verse 5 again, Jesus said, Take heed as, as no one deceives you. Take heed. It's a word that is a very strong word. It means pay attention. Watch. Don't fall asleep. Be sober. Be vigilant. And Jesus will end this message here in Mark's narrative by saying, Take heed. Watch. Don't be caught sleeping spiritually. Don't get distracted. Don't be pulled away, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. We know that all throughout the New Testament, the church was warned of deceivers, warned of false prophets. There have been many that have come in the church age over the last 2,000 years, claimed to be Messiah. Others coming along, claiming to be prophets, and others coming along, predicting the end of the age. What did we see just last month? There was all this, you know, talk of this group that was putting out signs and billboards about the rapture of the church is going to happen on May 21st. And of course, Jesus said, no one knows the day of the hour of the return of the Lord. I don't know what simple statement they didn't understand or what other people didn't understand. No one knows the day or the hour. So you'll have those that will come along and they'll make predictions and they'll set dates and all of this. Paul, writing to Timothy, said that in the last days there will be a falling away from the truth, that people will have itchy ears. Paul did not say it might happen. He said it is going to happen. And I believe that we are seeing that today. Unfortunately, in the church at large, we're seeing a dismissal of the Word of God. 
a diminishing of the Word of God and the importance of studying God's Word. We're seeing a, an acceptance of, of other things and other doctrines and, and other religions and other gods. It's interesting. I pulled this article up just a couple months ago. It was printed March 18th. That was right before Easter. And Barna did this survey that is completely amazing. I, I can't believe it. But in this Barna analysis and study that they did, it says this that one in four born-again Christians hold universalist thoughts when it comes to salvation, according to the new Barna analysis of trend data. Universalist says that we're all just children of God and we're all going to end up in heaven together. That's what it says. 25% of born-again Christians said all people are, are eventually saved or accepted by God. A similar portion, 26%, said one person's religion does not matter because all faiths teach the same lessons. That's what we're seeing a growing trend in, in the church. This isn't non-church people. This is church people, those who claim to be born-again Christians. Listen to this. An even higher proportion, 40% of born-again Christians, said they believe Christians and Muslims worship the same God. That's an amazing statistic that we are seeing, and we're seeing an increase in that, astounding increase in where there are those who believe in the church that, that we worship the same God as the Muslims do. Listen, we don't. We don't worship the moon God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is who we worship, the second person in the Trinity. According to the Barna analysis, 43% of Americans in general agreed with the statement, it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. So we're seeing this trend, and the report on what Americans believe about universalism and pluralism, pluralism is let's just all come together, accept all the religions and all the spiritual leaders, and it comes at a time when not only evangelicals, but even prominent secular media are debating the Christian teachings on salvation, and the idea of universalism due to Pastor Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and fate of every person who ever lived. So Rob Bell wrote a book, you know, in the last year, uh, one person, a pastor who has a large church, and he says pretty much that there is no hell, no one's going to hell, and we're all going to end up in heaven together. And it's a very popular book. So we see that this has taken place, and what happens is we ignore and nullify the need of Christ to die on the cross and the message of Jesus that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Don Carson, I'll read this and then we'll move on. Research professor of New Testament of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School said at the Gospel Coalition's National Conference last week that many are feeling pressure from the culture to find universalism attractive. There are pressures in our culture to reduce the truth content of Scripture and then simply dismiss people by saying that they're intolerant or narrow-minded or bigoted without actually engaging the truth question at all. And that really is sad. And in the long haul, it's horribly dangerous. You bet it's dangerous. Because Jesus said narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. Jesus is the way. And more and more pastors are feeling the pressure and ministry leaders that we've got to accept pluralism and universalism and other religions and other truths and we can't be narrow-minded, we can't be intolerant and all of this. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. We know in the last days, Revelation chapter 17 tells us that there's going to be this false church. You see, there's going to be a one-world religious system and I believe today we are seeing a move towards that. 
It's going to be a one-world false religious system that is going to be supported by one who is called the Antichrist. It's the woman riding the beast. But halfway in that final week, seven-year period, the tribulation period, the Antichrist will then destroy that one-world religious system, and he alone wants to be worshipped. Because the Antichrist is directly influenced by Satan himself and is something that Satan has always wanted, and that is to be worshipped. As you look at Isaiah chapter 13, he wanted to sit on the throne. He wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be like God. And he was cast out of heaven, Lucifer, and became Satan. And he's a master counterfeiter. He's a master deceiver, and he's going to deceive the whole world. And the whole world is going to come together in universalism and pluralism and accepting everything supported by this one man. We can go on and on with examples of those who have claimed to be messiahs or some prophet. And I believe that it's going to get worse in these last days. So Jesus' warning is very, very appropriate. Take heed, lest you be deceived. And along with false messiahs and Christ, false prophets and false doctrines will come along. That's why it is very extremely important, I can't emphasize it enough, that we be students of the Word of God. Because John said, test the spirits to see if they are of God. How do we test the spirits? We test it by the Word of God. And if you don't know the Word of God, if you're not rooted in the Word of God, you are going to get deceived in the day in which we're living in. And many are beginning to become deceived. Jesus said many, not a few, will come in my name deceiving, and many are being deceived, as I mentioned in verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. So not only false messiahs, but wars and rumors of war, famines and pestilence and earthquakes are going to occur. And they have happened over the last 2,000 years since Jesus was speaking this to his disciples. Catastrophes are going to happen, but these will not signal the end. But Jesus does describe these calamities as the beginning of sorrows, which literally means the beginning of labor pains. The idea is giving birth. So many Bible scholars suggest that what Jesus is saying is that there's going to be increase in intensity and frequency in these calamities. In other words, when a woman gives birth, when she is, goes into labor, she has contractions. But as she gets closer to the birth of that child, the contractions get more painful. They become more frequent. They're more intense. And that's what Jesus is saying that you're going to see wars and rumors of war and earthquakes and pestilence and famines. And it is the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs. And they're going to happen more frequently and more intensely. And I believe that we're looking around and we're asking ourselves that that's what's happening today. I think that it is. We've seen major earthquakes, the tsunami in Japan a couple years ago, a tsunami that wiped out a quarter of a million people in the Indian Ocean. We've seen tornadoes go through our own nation wiping out whole towns in the south and in the Midwest. More EF5 tornadoes this year than ever before. And we look at it and we say, what is going on? Fires that are burning in the south, extreme drought. We see that all around the world that these things are taking place and pestilence and famines and sicknesses that are taking place and plaguing our world. He said there's going to be wars and rumors of war. You know, one of the lies of Satan is that man can achieve peace. And the Bible is clear that there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes back to set up his kingdom. 
It is a very dangerous world in which we live in. There continues to be turmoil in the Middle East. We see that Hezbollah up in Lebanon continues to arm itself with missiles that can hit just about anywhere in Israel today. We know that the tension is very high on the borders of Israel and those nations surrounding Israel. There's upheaval and uncertainty in the governments of the Arab nations there in the Middle East. We know also that there is one nation, Iran, that in their development of nuclear technology is desiring to build nuclear weapons. And President Ahmadinejad has said that Israel is a cancer and must be wiped off the face of the earth. That the West is Satan and must be dealt with. It is very, very dangerous. The Middle East is a tinderbox that could go off at any time. And folks, it will go off. Not because Pastor Jeff says so, because the Bible says so. We have Psalm 83 that I think that very soon can become fulfilled. We have that leading perhaps into the war of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38, with a large confederation of nations that will come into Israel as well to come and fight Israel, but then God will defend Israel. We have other situations that, again, we can go on and on and talk about the rest of this morning, about present wars and dangerous places and Pakistan it has nuclear weapons that they're afraid the western analysis of it is that what if the Taliban what if al-Qaeda gets a hold of those nuclear weapons because of the uncertainty and the weakness of the government there it's scary so we could talk about present wars and and rumors of war and and the threat of war and Jesus said kingdom will rise against kingdom a nation against kingdom and there will be famine and earthquakes in verse 9 but watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations but when they arrest you and deliver you up do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak but whatever is given you in that hour speak that for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Right from the beginning of the church, Jesus' words here have been fulfilled. The book of Acts tells us how the apostle Paul and other apostles and early Christians, such as Stephen, were often beaten in the synagogues, put to death. They were dragged before governors and kings. Paul stood before King Agrippa and even Caesar Nero himself. And Paul gave testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who was brought before the religious council there in Jerusalem, he began to rehearse to them their history. And when he was speaking, his face began to shine like an angel as the anointing of God's Spirit rested upon Stephen, and he ended up being stoned to death. We read here in verse 10, it tells us that the gospel must be preached to all the world, the nations. Now there are missionary groups that say we need to preach the gospel to all nations, so let's get out there and preach the gospel so that Jesus can come back. Now it is a command that we're to go out to all the nations and preach the gospel. That's a good thing. But I believe you cannot say, well, the Lord cannot rapture us today because the gospel hasn't been preached to all the nations. That's not a valid argument because the gospel will be preached and this prophecy of Christ will be fulfilled. And Jesus says that the gospel will be proclaimed among the nations. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Colossian church some 30 years after the death of Christ, wrote that the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world. 
So the gospel went throughout the known Roman Empire and even evidence that it went up into India in the Far East by Thomas and some of the others. We do know they didn't come to this side of the world because this side of the world was not discovered till many centuries later. But in the book of Revelation, we know that there's going to be an angel during the tribulation period that will fly to and fro across the whole earth during that period, and he will preach the everlasting gospel to everyone. John writes in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, for you note-takers, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying in a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. So the gospel will be preached before the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the Lord here, back to our text in Mark chapter 13, verse 12, now brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, that you suppose that I came to give you peace on earth, I tell you not at all, but rather division. From now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two, father divided against his son, son against his father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. In this persecution, it involves the betrayal of family members by one another. And all of us who are called to be believers are called to be faithful unto death. Do you realize that? In the book of Revelation, Jesus calls the churches to whom he was writing to to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There are those who are put to death today, many, for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I was reading a statistic last night that in the year 2000, we think, well, that happened clear back 2,000 years ago, a lot of persecution or wave of persecution that took place in the early church. 165,000 Christians put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ in 2000. That's a lot of people. So it's happening today and it's increasing. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet in verse 14, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. As Jesus begins to talk about what's going to take place in the tribulation period, that final seven-year period prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, particularly here what is called the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation period. You recall in our Daniel study that the last four verses of the book of Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, is a real key to understanding end-time prophecy. And Jesus here making reference to what Daniel spoke of in chapter 9, that prophecy that was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel said, Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. That is, Daniel, there's going to be 70 periods of seven years to complete the history of Israel. And as we talked about in Mark chapter 11, as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that Daniel was told that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 445 B.C., as Artaxerxes there in Nehemiah chapter 2, gave that command to Nehemiah. Go ahead, Nehemiah, go back and rebuild the streets and, and, and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
When that command was given, then the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 is there's going to be 69 weeks or 483 years until coming of Messiah the Prince. And that was completed as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. But Daniel was told that there's going to be 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years that make up the history of Israel. There's still a seven-year period left concerning the people of Israel. It's known as Daniel's 70th week. So a seven-year period where God will be dealing with Israel and Gabriel saying to Daniel that Daniel's 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who's that? The Jews, Israel. So there's still a final week, that final seven-year period known as the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week. And Daniel 9 tells us that in the middle of that week, after three and a half years, that he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Now let's put scripture together very quickly. As we put together Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Daniel chapters 9 and 12, you might jot those down and look them up later. We know that the Jews are going to rebuild their temple. We talked about that when we were in Jerusalem last uh, month, that what we did is we went to a place called the Temple Institute where they have all the furnishings that are ready to go. They got all the, the things in place to begin to do sacrifice and offering in the ministry of the temple to take place. What was very fascinating is, and I didn't know this, that they said that they could begin to do the ministry of the temple even without a building. That once they get the go-ahead, that they can begin to do the sacrifices, because think about it, the sacrifices were done out in the outer court. They, begin, they can begin to do the temple ministry without even a building, while they're building the building. But it seems as though one's going to come along that Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 tells us, that he's going to confirm a covenant with many, and that covenant is going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple, and we know that there will be a second temple standing according to Revelation chapter 11 and also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now this one who's going to come on the scene, he's known as Antichrist. He's going to be a very powerful, dynamic individual who's going to be a great orator and a great leader. The Bible is very specific about it, repeats that over and over again, particularly in Daniel's account and his prophecies, that this one is going to be a skillful speaker. He's going to be one that the world's going to be enamored with. He's going to appeal to the hearts of the people, and the world's going to turn to him. And he's going to lead the world into a one-world government. He's going to lead the world into a one-world economic system and one world religious system, and he's going to be a military leader. And the nation of Israel is going to embrace him at first. But in the middle of that last seven-year period, the Antichrist, what he's going to do is this. He's going to go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and he's going to set up an image of himself. That is what is known as the abomination of desolation. He's going to set up that image of himself in the Holy of Holies, in that rebuilt temple. And Jesus says, when you see that image, understand this, know this, understand what the prophet Daniel is saying. Standing where it ought not, that is in the temple, an antichrist who has set up this image is going to command the world, the Jews, to worship him and to worship the image. And the Jews are going to say, no way. We're not going to bow down to a statue. That's one lesson that they've learned since 586 B.C. So you don't bow down to idols or statues. 
And even though the book of Revelation tells us that this statue is going to seem to have life, the Jews are going to say, no, we reject you. And then the Antichrist will turn and persecute the Jews very heavily. And that's why when Jesus said, when that happens, the abomination of desolation, then flee. Get out of there. Jesus is talking to the nation of Israel. Those who are in Judea, flee. He says, you are on the housetops, flee. They, they, that's a term. The Jews would be up on their housetops. He says, pray that it isn't in winter. In another gospel narrative, it says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. The Antichrist will heavily persecute the Jews at that time. And in the book of Revelation chapter 12, John tells us about the woman. That is the nation of Israel. And he said, and she was given wings of an eagle to bear her to the wilderness, to a place that has been prepared for her, and she will be nourished for three and a half years. So what will take place? He goes into the rebuilt temple. He declares himself as God, to be worshipped as God, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The Jews will say, no, we do not accept you. We will not bow down to your image. He will heavily persecute them. A remnant of the Jews are going to go over to modern-day Jordan to the rock city Petra. It's an ancient city that has been carved out of rocks it's almost the size of manhattan there's only one entrance into the rock city of petra through a narrow canyon and as there as the prophecies tell us that they're going to be nourished for three and a half years it is the antichrist and his army that will go after the jews at that time but as revelation chapter 12 says that the earth's going to open up and swallow that army that he sends after them, and the Lord will protect them and provide for them in the rock city Petra. Now, here's a little side note. How's the Lord going to provide for them? Think about it. Could it be, perhaps, maybe, the same way he did 35 years ago, 3,500 years ago, that is, in the wilderness, when he dropped manna, and water came from a rock? It'll be interesting. Verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would have been saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I've told you all things beforehand. So during the great tribulation period, as the Antichrist is persecuting the Jews, Jesus said there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of man. We know from the book of Revelation that the Antichrist will also go after those tribulation saints that have given their lives to the Lord during the tribulation period. Those who have refused to take the mark of the beast when Antichrist sets up that one world political system, that one world economic system. He will require that everyone take a mark on his forehead or his right hand to be able to buy and sell. The technology is all in place today. Matter of fact, it's old technology. They can put a little chip under your hand or under your forehead, keep track of everything about you. They do it today when it comes to dogs. They do it today when it comes to fish, keeping track of them, knowing where they're at. You can do that when you go to the vet. So a little chip under the skin. And during the period of the Great Tribulation, God will begin to move to judge the world in order that he might establish his kingdom, the kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace. God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. It will be a terrible, terrible, terrible time on the earth, even worse than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Never has the world seen anything to equal what is going to transpire during that time. We know that there's going to be a great war that's going to culminate known as the Battle of Armageddon there in northern Israel in the Valley of Megiddo. 
And Jesus says that if the days hadn't been shortened, then man would have destroyed himself. With the weapons that we have today, we have the capability to completely wipe out mankind from this planet. And at the end of that final seven-year period, that final week, Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, with the battle of Armageddon going on, that's when Jesus will return, touch down on the Mount of Olives, the very mount that Jesus is given this teaching on. And he will establish his kingdom here on the earth. Listen, when he sits on the throne, it's not going to be Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or anybody else. It's going to be Jesus alone. His name will be exalted above all names. And he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years. And we who are saved, we're going to come back with Jesus in his second coming. Jude says, Behold, he comes with 10,000 of his saints. The book of Revelation chapter 19 says that he, we come with him. This is our future. So Jesus has given us insights of what will take place in the tribulation period. But I want to say this quickly as we note verses 22 and 23. Jesus said, take heed. I'm telling you these things. These things will happen. So be watching, be alert. And he warns once again that there's going to be false Christs and false prophets that will arise and deceive many, even the elect. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to have a right-hand man called the false prophet. He will deceive many by signs and wonders. And I've said this before, and I've even mentioned it earlier, that, as most of you know, that you cannot just base truth on miracles and signs and wonders because Satan can work signs and wonders. It was Moses that went to Pharaoh, threw down his staff, and it turned into a rod, and Pharaoh's magicians threw down their staffs, and it turned into a, or their rod turned into a snake, and Pharaoh's magicians threw down their rods and it turned into a snake. It was Moses that was able to turn water to blood and it was Pharaoh's magicians that found some water that wasn't contaminated and they turned it to blood. It was Moses that called up frogs and Pharaoh's magicians, they called up frogs. So he has the ability to work miracles. Now he's not as powerful as God. Don't think of Satan as the opposite equal of God. He's not all-knowing, he's not all-powerful, but he is powerful. And he can work miracles, and he will call down fire from heaven, as the book of Revelation tells us in chapter 13. He will work miracles, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that's why it's so important that we base truth on the Word of God. The Word of God has been given to us, and that's why I'm committed to giving you the Word of God, all of it, so you can be discerning that what is truth, and what is deception, even there in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the children of Israel will warn, when you go into the promised land, if there is one who's a dreamer, one who claims to be a prophet, and he works miracles, but he pulls you away from the Lord, then you are to reject him. So we base our truth on the word of God and what the word of God has to say, not just on miracles. In verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then he will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest parts of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. So the climax of history, the appearing, the second coming of Jesus Christ as Lord with great power and glory. And again, I re want to remind you that this is not at all touching on the question of the rapture of the church. That is dealt with in other passages. So when Jesus comes back literally, physically, to establish his kingdom, his angels are going to gather the elect, that is Israel, back into the land. He's going to also be gathering those tribulation saints that made it, 
There will be the judgment of the nations. There will be the restoration of Israel that will take place at that time. In verse 28, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 24, Hosea chapter 9, Joel chapter 1, Israel is likened to a fig tree. So when you see the fig tree putting forth leaves, when it buds out, you know that summer is near. This spring, we watched our trees around here begin to bud. And we know that as they were budding, that summer is near. Now summer is here. Jesus said, when you see these things, then know that the end is near. How do we know that we're in the last days? That's what people ask me all the time. Pastor Jeff, you talk about the last days. How do we know? It's the budding of the fig tree. The rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. After 2,000 years, Israel becomes a nation once again. An absolutely amazing miracle of God. Never, never heard of before. Of being taken away captive, not just once like they did in the 70-year captivity and coming back and becoming a nation again. But secondly, after 2,000 years, just as the prophets of old said that would happen. We can look at the prophetic scene and look at the events all around. We can see that these things are beginning to be put into place just as the Bible said it would. Israel is a nation again. They want to rebuild their temple. The revived Roman Empire that we see in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 is taking shape in what is known as the European Union. People are being deceived by false Christs and prophets. The world is looking for a dynamic leader to help with all the problems that we're seeing. A leader that will take them into a one world economic and religious and political system. The pieces are all fitting together. Oh, we don't have time to talk about it all. And Jesus said, these things are going to happen. And heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants, to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. One more minute, we're just about done. But this is very important for us today as we make application. Jesus is saying, watch, you be ready. We don't know exactly when he's coming. No one knows the day they are except the Father. Luke tells us that we are to be the wise servant who watches and waits for his master's return. And if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you be ready, because the Son of Man comes in an hour you do not expect. I believe that the Lord can come for his church at any time. The question is, are you ready? Are you being wise? Are you being the wise servant? The wise servant means you continue to serve. Are you watching? We were told that over and over again by our Lord, to be alert. Don't let the thieves come into your life and wreck and ruin and rob all that God desires for you, particularly in these last days. And what my prayer is is that this church 
in you and I individually, that we wouldn't just get in the mindset of kicking back and getting lazy and lethargic. But Pastor Jeff, you've been talking about the Lord's return for 15 years now. I have. And I'm going to keep talking about the Lord's return because we're 15 years closer. And we're seeing the pieces of the puzzle as the birth pangs are happening. I believe now as I look at the prophetic scene that are coming together at more rapid pace than ever before. Watch. Be ready. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by the things of the world. I know we're in the world. We have lives to live. We have jobs and businesses. We have children. We have activities that we enjoy. But watch. Be watching. Because if I were to ask you, do you really believe the Lord could come today? And if you would say, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Jesus said, I come in an hour that you least expect. So be careful. And I believe the Lord wants us to be looking for his return. Because what does that do? There are those that are out there in the church today saying, it's not important to be looking for the Lord's return. You shouldn't be talking about the rapture of the church. It, it's a cop-out. That is not the heart of Scripture. Jesus said, you be watching, be wise, be ready, because I'm coming when you're least expected. It is John that said that he who has this hope purifies himself. If I really believe that maybe, perhaps, it could be that today that my Lord can come back, are you going to be out being all carnal and hanging out at the bars and partying and all of this? No. It purifies your life. It has a purifying effect on your life. And what it does is, as I read about what Jesus has to say, that there's going to be tribulation. This is going to happen. Jesus didn't say it might happen. It's a possibility. It's just an allegory. There's going to be tribulation as such as the world has never seen before. And if we are as close to the return of the Lord as I think that we are, then there are those that we love and care about that they don't know the Lord. And we want to be praying, and we want to be sharing, and we want to be here serving and serving elsewhere to where we can reach a city that doesn't know Christ and people that are linked to us in our lives and others for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not to kick back. And that's my prayer. But this morning, are you ready? And if there's anyone here that's listening to this message and, and hearing these verses, you're being touched, and you don't know if the Lord was to come back today or if your life was to end, because all of us, we're going to stand before the Lord, whether in the rapture of the church or our lives are going to end here. Our bodies are going to wear out. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And those of us who embraced him coming in faith and recognizing our need for the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, that he alone gives salvation and forgiveness of sin and brings us to the right relationship with the Father. You have a wonderful future because we're going to rule and reign with him and be with him for all eternity. Father, I pray that if there is anyone listening to this message on the radio, that, Lord, that they are not ready, that they don't know that if you were to have the trumpets blown today and you were to come back for us, the church, or if their lives were to end, because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. Lord, I pray that as you touch the hearts of those who perhaps are unsure, who've never surrendered their lives to you, come in faith, 
But Jesus said that you must be born again to seek the kingdom of God. And to be born again is to recognize that you have sinned. But through Jesus Christ, he has come to die for your sins. He alone, no other religious leader, no other religious system, Jesus Christ alone, the Son of God, came and died for you. And he died on Calvary's cross that you might have forgiveness of sin. And he is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is going to come back and establish his kingdom, which will be established forever. I pray that if this applies to anybody, that you would pray in your hearts that, Jesus, I want to be ready. Today is the day of salvation. And I know that you are the author of eternal life, that through you alone comes salvation and forgiveness of sin. And you can pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, I give my heart to you. I give my life to you. I surrender. I come in faith. I am a sinner. I confess it. And I ask that you would forgive me because I believe that you are the Son of God, Jesus, who died for me on Calvary's cross. And you were put into a grave and you rose again and you're at the right hand of the Father and I believe you're going to come back again. And I want to be ready. I want to be your child. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. I surrender my heart to you right now. And thank you for saving me. Be my Lord the Lord of my life, you are my Savior. Thank you, Jesus. And if anybody here prayed that prayer or out in the coffee shop, I just want you to put your hand up so we can just pray for you and bless you. Anybody at all here today, put your hand up.